You know, if you haven't noticed yet, it's winter time. And winter seems to be a time of panic. Don't you love how the news reports with such urgency the first time the case of the flu is confirmed in Iowa? Yes, someone somewhere in Iowa is going to get the flu this winter. We don't need to panic. And don't get me started on the first snowstorm of the year. We don't need to clear the shelves at Hy-Vee for a few inches of snow. Everyone will be able to get around the next day. But the media today seems to enjoy working everyone into a panic. Boosts their rating, makes them feel important. But sometimes the panic over a perceived threat does much more damage than the actual threat ever could do. You and I can't imagine what it was like living in London during World War II. The Blitz, as it was known, was a German bombing campaign against the major cities of Britain. Your house would blow up, so you'd find another one. And then that house would blow up. Some two million homes were destroyed. Can you imagine? must have seemed like the end of the world, but Prime Minister Churchill would not let them give up. People are strong. People adapt. People are resilient. And by 1943, the residents of London were battle-hardened. Air raid sirens were just a part of everyday life. When a bombing run was coming, the people would calmly pick up their bedding, go to the nearest bomb shelter, and wait it out. The people of Berlin were experiencing the same thing. The Royal Air Force would bomb Berlin, and then the Luftwaffe, which was the uh, German Air Force, would turn around and bomb London. So on March 3rd, 1943, Londoners were experiencing and expecting retaliation for a bombing run on Berlin a few days earlier. There's a heavily populated district in the east end of London called Bethnal Green that saw more than its share of bombings during the war. So that evening, the people were just naturally making their way to what is called the Tube. Excuse me. The tube is the underground train system in London. The Bethnal Green tube was an ideal bomb shelter because it was not quite finished before the war. There wasn't even a rail uh, line running through it yet. So 5,000 bunks were permanently installed in it along with toilets and other facilities. On this particular night, a half mile away in Victoria Park, an anti-aircraft unit was preparing to launch a new style of rockets for the first time. And these new weapons were much louder than anyone in the area had ever experienced. So when these guns started going off, it caused the East Enders to pour out of the pubs and the cinemas and rush to Bethnal Green Tube with renewed urgency. The stairwell down to the tube was poorly lit by a single 25-watt bulb that had rained that day, making the steps more treacherous than usual. And in the rush to safety, a woman carrying a small child fell at the bottom of the steps, and an elderly man tripped over her, and then hundreds of others toppled over them in the panic. People at ground level were pushing hard to get to the safety at the bottom, and the people at the bottom were unable to get back up. Everyone panicked, but unfortunately, there was no room to panic in that little stairwell. Eventually, someone climbed over all of the bodies to get to the surface and call for help. But for most of those caught in the crush, it would be too late. By the time all the bodies were pulled out, 173 people had been crushed to death, including 62 children. It would be the worst civilian disaster of the entire war. The disaster was so awful that authorities at the time covered it up. 
They were afraid that stories like this would cause even more panic. And most people who lived through it were so traumatized that they refused to talk about it anyway. It wasn't until 1993 that a plaque was hung in the stairwell of Bethnal Green Tube commemorating those who died. Here's what's most tragic about this incident. An investigation into the disaster found that there had been no enemy aircraft in the area that night. Perhaps the anti-aircraft rockets were fired by mistake, or maybe they were simply being tested. Either way, this tragedy never had to happen. There was no imminent crisis. No one was in immediate danger. But the ensuing panic caused more damage than the perceived crisis ever could. I don't know if you've ever experienced real panic in your life, but it never leads to anything good. Never in the history of the world has anyone said, it was sure was a good thing everyone panicked. And it doesn't necessarily take a life and death issue to trigger panic. Unfortunately, panic in our society is becoming a more common reaction to everyday problems in life, right? But panic gets people hurt, as we've already seen this morning in the Bethnal Green Tube tragedy. Panic causes people to react without thinking and makes people do things they'd never do otherwise. Panic is never God's will for our lives. And in our passage today from the life of David, we'll get a stark reminder that panic over a crisis often does more damage than the crisis itself ever could. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21 this morning. Or you can find it on your electronic device. If you don't have either of those things, you're welcome to take the Bible from the shelf underneath the pew in front of you and turn to page 244. Page 244, you'll find 1 Samuel 21. And there are notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This is the fourth episode of our current series of messages entitled Anti-Hero, The Chronicles of David. It's getting more and more difficult these days to tell the good guys from the bad guys. And as a result, we've seen the rise of the anti-hero in modern fiction. He is the hero of the story, but not quite. He does heroic things, but sometimes lacks heroic qualities. But the anti-hero is by no means a modern concept. The Old Testament is rife with anti-heroes who are used powerfully by God in spite of themselves. And chief among them was David. Try as we might to whitewash his image, the fact remains that his life was stained by blood and scandal. Yet somehow, someway, he overcame the odds and he won God's heart. These are the Chronicles of David. Now, if you've missed the first three installments of this series, don't panic. You can listen to all three on our redesigned website at ihefc.org. But for now, allow me just a minute to catch everyone up. Every antihero has an origin story. And on week one, we saw David's. When David was a young man, the king of Israel was a man named Saul. And Saul looked like a superhero. He was tall and handsome and wealthy. But God knows that men are flawed, and so he's not looking for superheroes. God chose more of an anti-hero to be the next king of Israel. God anointed David to be the next king, not because David was good necessarily, but because God was good to David. God loved David, even though he didn't deserve it, and he called him to a mighty task for which he was uniquely suited. Then on week two, we learn that not only does every anti-hero have an origin story, he also has an archenemy. David's rise to prominence came through slaying Goliath. 
And we learn that we should look for opportunities to do God's work that fit the particular skill set we already have. David was good with a sling, and God gave him an opportunity to use that skill to defeat Goliath. Finally, we learned last week that every anti-hero also has a sidekick. David had become good friends with King Saul's son, a man named Jonathan. And when King Saul became jealous of David's rising popularity, Jonathan stepped in to protect David. Jonathan's love for his friend and love for his people trumped any ambition he may have had to take the throne for himself. But as we'll see today, Jonathan could only do so much. Saul was intent on killing David, a man whom he saw more and more as a rival to the throne rather than simply the heir apparent. So after being warned by Jonathan that he couldn't protect him anymore, David runs. And in our passage this morning, David is going to show all the signs of genuine panic. He'll be desperately afraid. He'll make a rash decision. He'll do things he normally wouldn't do. David was a warrior, and normally he would fight, but instead he takes flight. It's amazing what people will do when they feel trapped. So this morning we'll get a peek into David's panic room, where his contrived anxiety, fear, and sense of dread will cause more damage than the crisis that was perceived ever could. So let's look at 1 Samuel 21, and we're just going to start at the beginning in verse 1. It says this, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as is always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today when their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Elimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here in a wrapped cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none like it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ashish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So look what we have here. David, the great warrior, is now running for his life. 
God had anointed him as the next king of Israel. The spirit of the Lord had come over him. So if he believes God, then he has no reason to run. But fear has a way of dampening faith, doesn't it? So David runs to Nob, which was a small town nearby where the priests of God live. And when Elimelech sees David alone, he's scared. Now, why would it worry him to see David alone? Well, imagine if someone like Governor Reynolds show up at your house, at your door, all alone and looking disheveled. Wouldn't you think that things were really wrong? Important people don't just travel alone. Elimelech knows that something is off, but he's not quite sure what's going on. So the first thing David does is tell the priest some bold-faced lies. No, you don't lie to a priest. But David's afraid, and he's desperate, and he feels trapped and isolated inside his own personal panic room. And in his paranoia, David is worried that Elimelech won't help him if he tells him the truth. So he lies to him. He tells the priest that he is on a special mission from Saul, and that he needs some bread, rather than telling him the truth, that he's running from Saul. Of course, Ahimelech wants to help, but all he has on hand is the holy bread. What's holy bread? Well, they were some highly symbolic loaves that the priests set on the altar each week to remind them of God's covenant. And they were so holy that the law prescribed that only the priests could eat them at the end of the week. The Jewish law this is important. We see in the law, Leviticus 24, 8 through 9, this bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, or other words, the priests who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. (coughs) So not only does David lie, but he commits an egregious violation of Jewish law. He steals this bread from the priests. Now, David would never do this ordinarily, but panic causes folks to do things They would never ordinarily do. David also takes Goliath's sword, which in his defense rightfully belongs to him in the first place. But he lies again to get it. And then David starts to make some decisions that are questionable at best. He's just not thinking clearly. He flees to the territory of the Philistines to ask for personal asylum, political asylum, from a king named Ashish. But he has with him the sword that he took from Goliath. A good rule of thumb is that when you go to the Philistines to ask for help, you never take the sword you used to kill other Philistines with. And don't think that the Philistines had forgotten what David had done to them. They still remember the song, and they're ready to kill him. And this scares David even more. So in one of the most humiliating moments in Scripture, David acts like a crazy person to gain sympathy from Ashish. Now, David would never disgrace himself like this normally, but he's desperate, he's panicking, and he just wants a way out. So he starts drooling and scratching at the walls. Ashish doesn't have time for such nonsense, so he throws him out. And as we'll see next week, David escapes from the Philistines and hides in a cave in the wilderness. So David has made a fool of himself. David has made some questionable decisions. David has lied, stolen, and broken the law. But at least no one got hurt, right? Well, that's not quite accurate. Look what happens in the next chapter. Remember Doag, that guy who happened to be hanging around when David was talking to the priest? 
1 Samuel 22, 9 through 10, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, and Elimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Skipping down to verse 18. Then the king, Saul, said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. This is what panic does in our lives. David did more damage here in his panic than Saul would have ever done ordinarily in his jealousy. So what's the point of this awful little story? Well, to understand the point, we have to fast forward 1,000 years in history. David would have a descendant. And that descendant would comment on this story. And when this particular descendant commented on something, no further comment needed to be made because it was Jesus. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this episode from the past. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says this, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, when the religious leaders of the day saw this, They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the temple and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples. This is 1,000 years later from the time of David. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they're hungry. So the disciples pick some heads of grain to eat and they harvest them technically, which was lawful for people to do at this time. Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you must, you may eat your fill of grapes as many as you wish, but you should not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So this was God's provision for poor people. And the religious leaders had no problem with Jesus and his disciples plucking grain in someone else's field, it was the fact that they were working, quote-unquote working, on their precious Sabbath that made them upset. Exodus 24, 21, the law says, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. God had commanded his people not to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was holy, uh, the, the seventh day, just like the bread on that altar was holy that David took and ate. Only the priests could work on the Sabbath, and only the priests could eat the holy bread. So the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples harvesting a few heads of grain to eat, and they are sent into a great moral panic over this. Do you know what a moral panic is? 
A moral panic is when fear spreads among the population about some evil that supposedly threatens the well-being of society. Sometimes it's as brazen as the Salem witch trials of the late 17th century, but usually it's subtler than that. In the 80s, there was the panic over AIDS, which was spread by uh, dirty drug needles and promiscuous sexual activity. More recently, we've had moral panics over the legalization of marijuana or the threat of underage smoking and problems associated with obesity. So people get scared, and what do they do? They demand that something be done. Prohibition is a prime example where the production, transportation, and sale of alcohol had been constitutionally banned from 1919 through 1933. And at first, prohibition was a very popular movement. People were afraid that alcohol-related crime would tear the country apart. Local politicians looked like superheroes as they smashed barrels of booze with axes in front of cameras. But once the 18th century, uh, or the once the the 18th Amendment was overturned, politicians needed another crisis in order to stay relevant. They needed another moral panic. And New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia found his boogeyman in the form of pinball machines. That's right. While Londoners and London authorities were trying to quell the panic caused by German bombs, New York City authorities were trying to cause a panic by demonstrating the evils of pinball machines. Pinball machines, you see, were the catalyst behind the rising crime rates and delinquency among the youths of New York City. The pennies and nickels kids could have been using for lunch were instead going into these flashy demonic machines And you thought New York City ban on trans fat and oversized sodas was ridiculous. At the time, pinball machines were considered games of chance. So the city was able to regulate them under existing gambling laws. And since kids played pinball so much, they banned them outright in the city. Just like the days of Prohibition, pictures of Mayor LaGuardia smashing confiscated pinball machines with a sledgehammer appeared in local newspapers. And everywhere, everyone, everywhere roared in approval. LaGuardia's crusade was so popular that cities like Chicago, New Orleans, Milwaukee, and Los Angeles instituted their own bans on pinball. Then in 1941, America entered World War II, and you would have thought that the war against pinball machines would have seemed a little silly in comparison. But the war only served to stoke LaGuardia's zeal. He railed about how the steel in those worthless pinball machines should be going towards the war effort. So as a result of the pinball ban... The crime in New York City plummeted, right? Well, we know better than that, right? Just as it had during Prohibition, organized crime stepped in to supply the public's demand for pinball. When Jewish mobster Meyer Lansky wasn't beating up Nazis in New York City, he was funding underground penny arcades. I wish I was making this up, but it's real. (laughs) Suddenly, pinball wasn't just a kid's game anymore. When the man tells you you can't do something, it makes you want to do it even more. So no matter how hard LaGuardia tried, he couldn't rid the streets of those filthy nickel stealers. And eventually, the moral panic wore off. You can only work up people so long, right? But it took a long time. New York City didn't lift the ban on pinball until 1976. 
And only then, after an expert pinball player demonstrated in front of the city council that pinball was a game of skill and not chance. In a Manhattan courtroom, pinball master Roger Sharp, at the behest of the Amusement and Music Operators Association, perfectly shot a pinball into a predetermined hole on the playing service, and the council was convinced it's not a game of chance. So on May 13, 1976, they voted to allow the dreaded pinball machine to corrupt the youths of New York City once again. You really? You know, we had just gotten out of Vietnam, and this is what the people of New York City were worried about? And this seems completely ridiculous to us, right? When it comes to vices, pinball isn't even in the top 500. No one's going to lose their life savings to a pinball machine. But logic doesn't seem to matter amid a moral panic, does it? And that's what we see from the Pharisees in our passage with Jesus here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, if they weren't constantly working up everyone over some perceived moral threat to their society, then they would lose their power and influence, wouldn't they? They needed a crusade. They needed a boogeyman. And Jesus filled that role nicely. After all, he allowed his disciples to work on the Sabbath. Technically, they were harvesting on the Sabbath, which was clearly contradicting to the Jewish law. And it seems ridiculous to us, but this was a big deal to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had set themselves up as the protector of the people from these types of nefarious activities. If they let this slide, then the next thing you know, people would be working all day long on the Sabbath, and then there would be all sorts of problems. I don't know what those problems would be exactly, but logic goes out the window amid a moral panic. But Jesus knew how self-righteous these guys were. He knew that they could have cared less about people's well-being and were only thinking about their own power, influence, and self-interest, like politicians today. So Jesus reached way back to our story this morning about David's panic in order to blow up the Pharisees. He alludes to the fact that technically the priest broke the Sabbath every week when they worked to make the holy bread. And then he seems to let David off the hook for his violations here. Now, why does he let David off the hook? Well, it's simple. Jesus simply says, that David was hungry. He was desperate. He was alone. He was panicking. Jesus considered the circumstances and he made the decision to extend mercy to David. And what gives Jesus the right to allow this violation on God's word to slide? Because he was the Lord of the Sabbath and everything else for that matter. Jesus reserves the right to apply mercy to any violation of the law because it's his law. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that he applies that mercy generously, doesn't he? Aren't you thankful for that? So this is our main point from this morning's passage, and it's in your bulletin if you'd like to write it down. The main point is endorsing right and wrong is matter of fact. Enforcing right and wrong is less exact, okay? Endorsing right and wrong, determining what is right and what is wrong, that's matter of fact, black and white, cut and dry. Enforcing right and wrong, well, 
That's a little less exact. We're going to talk about what we mean here. In the book of Exodus, God gives a whole bunch of laws for the Israelites to follow. And these laws are very black and white. He does it on Mount Sinai with Moses and all the fire and all that kind of stuff. And God makes it very clear what is right and what is wrong. And after all these laws are finally given, and they are a lot, you know, fill a book with them. After all these laws are given, God commands Moses and the Israelites to leave his presence at Mount Sinai and go into the promised land and live their lives. But Moses isn't okay with that. It's not enough for them to know wrong from right. Moses knows that the people will not be able to follow the law all the time. So they needed God himself to go with them so they would know how to apply God's law justly and mercifully. I want to show you this. Exodus chapter 33. This is after the law is given. Verses, uh, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Now you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, to help me apply the law. You have said, God... I know you by name and have found favor and you have found favor with me, but if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you. Not just the law, I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If you skip down to verse 19, the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, and I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Moses knows God's law, and all the people, they know it. They know what's right, and they know what's wrong. It's very clear. It's a very matter of fact. But now Moses needs to know God's heart. Now he needs to know how God would apply these laws in a way that was fair and just, but also showed great mercy and compassion because that's the heart of God. That's a lot tougher, isn't it? It takes wisdom to know the heart of God and apply his laws in different circumstances. And sometimes it seems really unfair to apply harsh justice in one situation and then apply mercy to another person in another situation. The Apostle Paul fully recognized this controversy in the New Testament, but he doesn't try to resolve it. He just quotes what God himself said. Romans chapter 9, 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. I mean, is God unjust for showing people grace and mercy when they violate his law? Mm-mm. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember that story when they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus? Remember that? He didn't debate the rightness and wrongness of what she had done. She was clearly wrong. But he applied mercy when prescribing judgment on her. And in our passage this morning, Jesus doesn't comment on the rightness and wrongness of what David did all those years ago. David was clearly in the wrong on multiple counts of the law. But even though David violated the law and made a total mess of things, God extended him mercy. Remember, we interpret and imply 
all of God's laws and commands through the heart of Jesus. Remember John 5, 39 through 40? Jesus tells these Pharisees that you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You don't go to the law to have life. You come to me to have life, Jesus says. You see, Jesus is more than the sum total of his words. Scripture shows us black and white truth. Very matter of fact. But it can't possibly show us how to apply that truth in every possible scenario we may face, right? There's too many. So we have to learn to think like Jesus and apply the truth of God's word like Jesus. And that's our application from our passage this morning. It's in your bulletin. The application is this. Know the written word, but show the living word. Okay? Know the written word, but show people in your actions the living word. Who's the living word? It's Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, people only had the written word for the most part. The Old Testament. That's all they had. They only had the written law that God had given them from afar from on top of Mount Sinai. Okay? That's all they had. In the New Testament, however, we have the living embodiment of the law, which is Jesus Christ. He is the living word. Proclaimed in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus became a man and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows us how to apply God's word. Sometimes there's more grace, sometimes there's more truth. But we are not slaves to every minutia of the law. We don't have to apply the same formula for every situation in our lives. We don't have to say, well, last time we did that to that person who messed up, so this time we have to do this same thing to this other person who's messed up. You see, Jesus was not consistent all the time when he applied truth. At least in our thinking, he wasn't. He knew when some people needed a kick in the pants and when they needed a pat on the head. So if someone is found to be living in sin, we don't have to automatically drop the hammer on them. We have the latitude to consider their circumstances, their age, their maturity, as we apply God's word to their particular situation. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, let me just give you an example of this. Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth how to deal with someone in their church who's living in sin. And this was a really, really egregious sin. You can read about it sometime, but it's 1 Corinthians 5.13. He tells them to expel the wicked person from among you. But does that mean we expel every person from among us who does something wrong? It'd be a pretty empty place, wouldn't it? In this passage, Paul can't possibly be giving us just a blanket command to apply to every situation. He was just telling the Corinthians what they were doing. 
what they were to do in that particular instance because this person's particular sin was destroying a lot of people. You see, we're not drones. We have latitude in applying God's word through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. And some may think, well, this, this concept seems a little controversial. But don't panic. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul says in many different places. 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 3, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, if you apply the letter of the Old Testament law to every situation in the exact same way, you're going to kill people. That's not the heart of Jesus. But as we interpret it through the Spirit and have the latitude to show grace and mercy, then there's life. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. <clears throat> written code's black and white. Right and wrong is black and white. How we enforce that, though, there's a whole lot of latitude we have as we follow Jesus' example. Finally, Romans 8, 2, Apostle Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from a rigid, severe, inflexible application of God's law so we can love people. As mentioned in the beginning, it is wintertime. If you live on a side street like we do, then you know that during a bad snowstorm, it can take a few days before the city comes and plows it, right? So last week, I was reading a story. I don't know if it was on Des Moines Register or one of the TV stations, but I was reading a story online about a man in Des Moines who was using his own pickup, pickup truck to plow his side street so his neighbors could get to work last week in that bad snowstorm we had. Sounds like a good deed, right? Well, no good deed goes unpunished. One of his neighbors called the police on him because technically it's illegal for a private citizen to plow a public street and you can get fined for it. Local news went to interview the lady who had called the police to get her side of the story, but she declined to be interviewed. So they interviewed this guy's other neighbors instead. And they were so appreciative of what he was trying to do for them and his kindness and compassion, that they're willing to overlook the violation of the law. Yes, it is against the law to plow a city street, even if it takes them days and days and days to get to your street. I suppose you could knock over someone's mailbox or something. And yes, the Bible says that we should obey those in authority over us. But come on. This was an emergency. People were in need. So a guy tried to be kind and help. We can appreciate this act of kindness while at the same time withholding judgment on the rightness and wrongness of his actions, though he technically broke the law. We can apply mercy, not justice. Maybe next time he can pile the snow in front of that lady's driveway. (laughs) This is how Jesus applied the law when his disciples harvested on the Sabbath. 
There was no room for a moral panic. Maybe they were technically violating the Jewish law, but Jesus applied mercy. They were just hungry after all. And the same is true with David sneaking the holy bread. Yes, it was wrong, but God didn't panic. Instead, he withheld judgment. And sometimes this doesn't seem fair. What David did here is just as bad as some of the things that Saul had done earlier. But God, in his infinite wisdom, enforced his law differently in these two circumstances. What's right and what's wrong is completely objective. Absolutely. Matter of fact, cut and dry, black and white, no question. What's right and what's wrong is completely objective. But how we enforce right and wrong is not an exact science. Jesus gives us a lot of latitude in how we deal with sinners. In other words, how we deal with one another in our sin and how we deal with folks in our community who are struggling. So my advice today is very, very simple that you can take home with you. Interpret truth Literally. We interpret truth literally, right? Interpret truth literally. But apply grace liberally. Right? So we've seen that every anti-hero has a few things in common. They all have origin stories, arch enemies, sidekicks, and times of crisis. But next week we'll see that the life of every anti-hero is a lonely one, right? So read 1 Samuel 22 through 24 this week and bring a friend next Sunday as David demonstrates to us that even when a man is surrounded by people, he can still be completely alone. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for, for these good people who are here and they've come and they want to be encouraged and inspired by your truth, Lord. And, and God, I pray that as we read scripture, as we come to church as we hear things from your word, that we would interpret it literally. It's very clear. You made it very clear what is right and what is wrong from scripture. But Lord, I pray that we would apply grace liberally to people. We would consider their circumstances as they sin, Lord. We would consider the struggles that they have. Lord, as people deal with me and my sin and the things that I do wrong, I pray the very same for me. They would apply grace liberally to me because I need it. Lord, sometimes it may seem unfair for us in one situation to maybe be a little easier on somebody than somebody else, but, but God, we just give us wisdom to apply your truth to each individual in each individual circumstance. Lord, I thank you so much that though we violate your word every day in multiple counts, that you apply grace and mercy liberally to us. We're grateful, God, for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name.